0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Government bonds are considered the world's safest asset, setting the risk-free rate against which all other investments are judged. But with rising national debts and dwindling credit ratings, are they really above question? I want to know what happens if the assumption
1: underpinning all our investments is faulty. And in today's dumb question of the week, why choose bonds over simply holding cash? Okay, let's get into it. So the idea for this episode came about from a tweet thread I read by Aswath Damodaran, who we've referenced on the podcast before. He's a professor of finance at New York University and is known as the Dean of Valuation. Big fan, Robin? Massive fan.
0: I love his stuff. You know, he really puts an effort into educating people about valuation. He makes all of his stuff available for free. You've got these brilliant spreadsheets. And if you want to understand how valuation works, there's no better resource, I don't think. And so he starts
1: this Twitter thread by saying, every finance class starts with the notion of a risk-free investment, with the government bond rate proxying as the risk-free rate. That rate becomes a key ingredient of every model. But what if governments are not default-free? So what do you think's caused him to have this thought and make a big deal about it now?
0: Well, he always uses the 10-year treasury rate in his models as the risk-free rate, which I always thought was a bit sloppy and a bit weird. But there are better choices, I think. But at the moment, obviously, what people are talking about is the downgrade of the US. And lots of people are saying that it's not going to be able to pay its debts in the future. And it's on shaky ground in terms of credit risk.
1: But the downgrade of the US debt by Fitch, the ratings agency, is presumably because they think there is a risk that the US could default on their debt. That's the whole point, right? It's no longer AAA and above question.
0: And we've had this before. We've been down this road in 2011 when there was a downgrade of US bonds.
1: That was by S&P, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, that was S&P. And the weird thing was that they actually rallied as a result. Stocks sold off, but bonds rallied. So the bonds got
1: riskier, but the yields fell. (laughs)
0: yields (laughs) fell and the prices rose, yeah. I mean, it makes almost no sense because people were scared, I guess. But not scared enough to think that treasuries were a risk.
1: So they were scared, and they rallied to the safest thing, which was treasuries, even if it was a little less safe than before.
0: Well, I think the question is whether it was less safe than before. It's still the case, I think, that the U.S. Treasury market is probably the safest debt market in the world.
1: Certainly not the one with the highest credit rating, though. No. So there are still nine countries with AAA ratings from all three of the major agencies, which is S and Fitch and Moody's.
0: Now, many of those countries I thought were kind of predictable. Germany, obviously. Singapore, I thought, would be. Norway, more money than God. And Switzerland, of course. But there were some surprises there as well. So, for example, Australia is also a AAA country.
1: Which is weird because usually countries that rely on commodity exports are not seen as that safe, right? Because it's quite a volatile industry, Yeah, the price of commodities.
0: But China's been a pretty safe buyer of its commodities, I guess. Maybe that's the justification. Maybe it's the amount of debt issued. Canada as well, that was a bit of a surprise. What,
1: that it's AAA?
0: Yeah, because I think, you know, (laughs) they're kind of seen as a poor neighbour of the US. Let's just offend another group of people. Have we already (laughs) insulted Canada?
1: Yeah, I insulted Canada before. Don't worry about that.
0: Okay. Liechtenstein, surprising. Just a big city, really, isn't it?
1: But the thing that's interesting about the countries that are still AAA-rated is that it's been a dwindling list over time. So, for example, the UK was downgraded in 2013 and is no longer AAA. Ireland was downgraded in 2008. France in 2012. And it just seems that over time, the number of countries that are thought of as risk-free, at least from the rating agencies, is shrinking and shrinking. Are we going to get to a point where there will be no risk-free countries?
0: I don't think so, simply because it would make the AAA credit rating less believable, I think. There've got to be some sovereigns which are AAA. Why? Well, I think that there have to be some governments which are seen as responsible. I can't see Germany throwing caution to the wind when it comes to fiscal policy. They're not going to start spending like crazy. They've done it before, a long time ago. A very long time ago, and I think they learnt that (laughs) (laughs) lesson.
1: But it's not always because of government missteps or central bank missteps that a country might default, right? There could be a natural disaster. There could be war. There could just be something weird that happens in the economy, something they've overlooked. It could be.
0: And the credit rating agency would have to respond. They'd have to say, look, now they're less able to service their debt. What the credit rating agencies say to back up their AAA rating
1: is that no country rated as AAA, has ever defaulted on its debt within 15 years of getting that AAA rating.
0: So I didn't realise it came with a time element as well.
1: Well, it doesn't officially, but when they're trying to back up their decisions.
0: It's interesting if you look at the credit spread on the US, you can measure this indirectly via the credit default swap market. So this is insurance for bonds. If there is a default, your CDS will pay you back the full value of the bond. So the other side of this trade, the person who's writing the insurance policy, if you like, they're receiving a premium for that potential payout. And the bigger the premium, the bigger the risk of default. So the credit spread is a direct measure.
1: Right. So you can sort of read off this, how likely the market thinks it is that a country will default on its debt. Yeah. And a lot of people say that's a better indicator than what a load of number crunchers at the credit agencies think.
0: Yeah, exactly, because it's market-derived and it's kind of updated in real time. Markets are never wrong about these things. No, never. Especially when it comes to credit spreads. That was sarcasm, by the way, if people weren't (laughs) aware. (laughs) You looked
1: sarcastic, but your voice didn't sound sarcastic. There's a problem.
0: Okay. So just to give you a feeling for this, an investment-grade bond would have a spread of, I don't know, 50, 100 basis points tops.
1: So that's like up to 1%.
0: Yeah, 1%. And then a junk bond would have maybe 600, all the way up to whatever you like. So much riskier. Yeah, 10,000 basis points is about to default. So the US at the moment has a credit spread of around 0.3%. And as a result of that Fitch downgrade, there was no meaningful increase in that credit spread. So effectively, the markets were just giving a big meh. You know, they didn't care.
1: Yeah. But there is a spread though which means the market doesn't see US debt as
0: risk-free. People are willing to take the other side of the bet, yeah. And some people are buying protection, very cheap protection, it has to be said, for a very weird tail risk. But I think the fact that the spread is so tight tells you pretty much everything you need to know. It's an interesting kind of insurance,
1: though, isn't it? In a world where the US defaults on its debt, (laughs) is your insurer going to pay you back what you're owed?
0: Yeah, that would be catastrophic. And it would be a very, very disrupted world in which that happened. So you've always got to think about the wrong way risk. When you're buying protection from a bank, is the bank going to suffer at the same time as the event which causes the whole problem in the first place?
1: But the thing with government bonds is they play this key role, don't they? They underpin a lot of decisions in finance because they're seen as risk-free or assumed to be. And this brings us on to the idea of the risk-free rate, which you hear about all the time. But what actually is the risk-free rate? And why do we need it?
0: It's just what you'd think. So it's the rate of return you'd receive from an entity which has no credit risk. In other words, you're guaranteed to get your money back. Now, the government is very close to that in the US. Not exactly equal to that, as we saw, but it's pretty close.
1: So to go back to Aswath Damodaran, he says for an investment to be risk free, you have to feel certain about the return you'll make on it. And the issuing entity, so in this case a government, can have no default risk and there can be no reinvestment
0: risk. What does he mean by reinvestment risk? So let's say you've got a 10-year treasury and you're receiving a coupon of 1% per year. Now, the assumption is when you work out the yield to maturity that you can reinvest it back at the yield of the bond and that goes into the yield calculation. But of course, you don't know what the returns are going to be on those coupons which are reinvested. Right. Right. So there is a small risk that those won't be the same as a the yield. They could be higher or lower. So
1: basically, you have to match your investment horizon with the maturity of the bond. So Damodaran says a six-month treasury bill is not risk-free if you have a 10-year horizon. So what you just said. You've got to reinvest it all the time. And conversely, a 10-year treasury is not risk-free with a six-month horizon. Because as we've seen, the price of longer-duration treasuries moves up and down all the time. And if you need to sell it in six months... Who knows what you'll get for it?
0: Exactly. It holds maturity that really has the least risk, I'd say. Still has reinvestment risk, but it doesn't have the kind of sell early risk. But the other point is that you can get zero coupon bonds where there's no coupon reinvestment risk. And for the US, they issue lots of these. Any treasury with a maturity of up to one year will usually have zero coupon form. So you buy it at a discount, and all of the return comes from capital gain. There's no coupon at all. Interesting.
1: So that would mean that if we did assume that the US had no risk of default, that would be the risk-free rate for a year.
0: Yeah. So anything up to a year, you could probably find a T-bill which is going to match up with the maturity. Beyond that, what quants do all the time is to build yield curves as if there was a zero coupon bond of any maturity. And that's what you use in your discount factor models. So
1: they're trying to eliminate this reinvestment risk from the risk-free rate.
0: Yeah, and the logic is something like this. You can say, look, I know the yield curve today. Can I find a zero coupon bond which is completely hedgeable, which has a certain rate of return, and which is consistent with that yield curve? And the answer is yes, you can. There are various ways of calculating it. So you can come up with zero coupon rates for any maturity, but it requires a bit of quant magic.
1: Oh man, it sounds like a lot of work. Why do we need to do all this? Why is the risk-free rate so important?
0: It is unbelievably important. So, if you can imagine anything that's important, this is probably the single most important number in finance. Why is that? Well, let's say you want to work out the price of something. If you want to work out its present value, you just add up the discounted future cash flow values. The discount rate is the risk free rate. So, if you know the discount factors, you know the price today. So, it lets you price anything. Absolutely anything which has cash flows. So in a way, it's saying if we're going to be taking some risk, we're going to
1: be investing in a stock or a company's bond or whatever it might be. We need to know what return we think we're going to get above the risk-free rate because we could just go and buy something risk-free and get that return locked in, right? So it's kind of the differential between the two that matters.
0: Exactly. And if anything doesn't give you more than the risk-free rate and it has risk, well, why on earth would you buy it? It would be crazy to do that. And you can see that at the moment, if government yields are going up, government bond yields are going up, stocks become less attractive, because if you can earn 5% risk-free, kind of, then (laughs) stocks become less attractive. So when we're looking at risky assets and
1: comparing them to the risk-free rate, what kind of risks are we actually layering on top then?
0: Well, to put it in farming terms, we're harvesting risk premium, which means that Every asset effectively generates this return above the risk-free rate. It's just a question of how much. For stocks, you get a very chunky risk premium. And the reason for that is that their future cash flows are so uncertain. You really don't know what you're going to get. And so you have to be compensated heavily for that.
1: Although some people say that the equity risk premium is lower than it's ever been at the moment.
0: Well, Damodaran calculates this, and he shows you how he comes up with a number. And I think that's a bit questionable, but still, he does that for the S&P, he does it by country, and he publishes that on a regular basis. It's really nice. I love his analysis.
1: But is the gist that bonds are paying more, but stocks still look expensive relative to their earnings, therefore the risk premium is lower than it's been for a long time?
0: That's it. I mean, if valuations are high, risk premium is low. It reduces future return. It doesn't necessarily mean
1: you're guaranteed a lower return, right? It's just the most likely course from here. That's right.
0: That's right. It doesn't guarantee anything. But what other risks are we laying on top of the risk-free rate? So there are various things you can add. Obviously, we've talked about credit risk. So if you buy a corporate bond, there's a question of whether you get your money back. So you have to be compensated for that. Liquidity risk is one that doesn't usually get discussed, but which is really large. For lots of assets like private equity or things like high-yield corporate bonds, they tend to have a very big liquidity spread. And is that the risk that
1: you just won't be able to get your money back when you need it?
0: Yeah, because when these markets go into distress, what happens is that they effectively shut down and you can't sell it. So you have to be compensated for that risk. You better like it because you're going to keep it for a while. So we've got credit risk, liquidity risk... Duration risk is another one. So if you lock in your money for a long period of time, there's a risk that interest rates could increase and you'll be left feeling a sense of FOMO.
1: And some people I think refer to that as interest rate risk, don't they?
0: Yep, interest rate risk, duration risk, those are two different names for it. And then of course we've got things like political risk. If you've got an investment in a country which could decide to scrap its capital markets, has happened, happened in Russia, happened in China then you could stand to lose 100% of your investment. That's very difficult to quantify, however. So the game when
1: we're investing in any asset really is to decide are we getting enough compensation in terms of return for all the different risks we're taking on? And we can only do that in comparison to the risk-free rate. If we don't know what the risk-free rate is, how do we know if we're getting the right compensation?
0: Yeah, and some entities are actually less risky than the government. So there are two AAA entities in the US Johnson & Johnson and Microsoft, I believe they're still both AAA. And they often trade with a tighter credit spread than the US government, which is <laughs> interesting.
1: I mean, it's interesting you mention those companies as safer than the US, because the government always talks about, oh, we've never defaulted on our debt, we never would. But is that really true? Like, Whenever I've done research on this, there are some occasions from history where it looks like the US didn't quite meet its obligations, or at least not on
0: time. Yeah, in the 70s, they missed a coupon, but it was because there was a kind of furlough, I think it was a government furlough, and the people who were there who had to print out the checks, because it was done by checks, weren't there. And so technically, they did default, but of course, people were made whole afterwards.
1: And there are various other occasions. So in 1814, when there was the war with the British, the US didn't quite meet its obligations. And again, in the 30s, the president refused to pay treasury bondholders with gold which was a term of the contract. So they're kind of weirdly technical defaults. I guess you can argue that the US has never defaulted.
0: And if you go far back enough, well, the US didn't exist, but the UK was a serial defaulter. That's because it was primarily a commodity exporter. It was big in the wool industry and it fought lots of expensive wars, which it couldn't afford.
1: This was the surprising thing to me. Like I always assumed government bonds, at least in developed markets, are risk-free. But then when you look into it, Almost every country has defaulted at
0: some point. So why are we assuming they're risk-free? In the case of developed markets, I think it's a case of, okay, there might be a technical default, but you will get your money back in some form. That's the assumption. And it's justified in almost all cases. And I guess you can profit from that. I remember
1: you saying that the best trade you ever recommended was Italian bonds in the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. Because it was the case that the yields went really high and you thought, well, they're not going to default. You may as well buy them now.
0: And as it turns out, I was right. Uh, you know, maybe it was just a lucky call. But that was incredible in terms of risk-adjusted returns. But there are other examples where risk-free rates are really important. If you're a company and you're investing in some kind of project, then there's something called a hurdle rate, where the return on the project has to be above that hurdle rate. And of course, the risk-free rate is a very important hurdle rate. If you can just park your money in treasuries, and earn more than you would by investing in some new factory or subsidiary of your company, then you wouldn't invest in that. Absolutely. And this
1: is one transmission mechanism, I think, for monetary policy when they raise interest rates, is that it makes companies a lot less likely to invest because the hurdle rate goes up. And they may as well just buy treasuries unless they're now going to get 7% return on equity investment.
0: Yeah, even Warren Buffett was buying short duration US treasuries, and he usually holds them, but He was saying that this is an incredible opportunity as the yields increase. And then finally, you've got arbitrage pricing. Now here, the idea is, let's say you've got something risky and you hedge out all of the risks that we've talked about, the ones you can hedge. What you're left with should return the risk-free rate. So let's say you've got a call option. You hedge it by buying and selling stock so that you've got no overall directional risk well, you should just have the risk-free rate in that case. That's what it should return, a hedged call option. And that's exactly how they're priced. If you look at the Black-Scholes model, behind all of the fancy mathematics, that's the intuition. Hedge it, and it gives a risk-free rate. Is that a like,
1: really complicated, nerdy way of saying there's no free lunch? Like if you get to the point where you've hedged everything and you've got no risk, then you're not going to get anything above the risk-free rate.
0: Yeah, all you get is the risk-free lunch of the risk-free rate. You don't get any extras.
1: And the risk-free lunch is not that tasty.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) Although it's tastier than it
1: was. But I guess that last point about arbitrage pricing implies that there is always a risk-free rate, even if government bonds are no longer risk-free. Let's say there is a real risk of default on treasuries and government bonds in every country. You can still get to the risk-free rate if you can account for the default risk, right?
0: Yeah, and this is one of the things Damodaran does. He shows the individual country default risk, which you can back out using CDS spreads, and then he can go back to the risk-free rate for that country.
1: Yeah, because I think this is a key thing to understand, is that some people think that there are government bonds and that determines the risk-free rate. But it's not, is it? It's the fact that there is a risk-free rate, and if your government bond is risky, it will have a spread on top of the risk-free rate. The risk-free rate is like this theoretical thing that underpins everything. And we never quite know what it is. We have to estimate it.
0: And in Europe, it's kind of interesting the way they do it. It's all relative to bunds, German government bonds. So you talk about spread to bunds. So Spanish bonds, for example, will be compared with what yield you'd get for an equivalent German bund, with the assumption, of course, being that Germany is risk-free.
1: And that only works because they have the same currency, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what determines the risk-free rate then in an economy, in a currency?
0: So the logic is quite beautiful, I think, for what drives the long end of the curve. So these are 20-year, 30-year yields on government bonds. So if you invest in companies in a country and its overall economy, then you should generate a certain return on those investments. Whereas if you invest in the government bonds... You're sacrificing the investment in the economy for the investment in the treasuries. So, in order for that sacrifice to be worthwhile, the long end of the curve should be roughly equal to the nominal growth rate in the country. That's inflation plus real growth. So, it's really a return for sacrifice. In turn, that means that the long end of the curve is driven by growth and inflation expectations for that country. Which is interesting because
1: a lot of people think that central banks set interest rates and effectively determine the risk-free rate. But that's not right, is it? Damodaran makes the point that central banks are more in discovery mode, right? They're trying to discover what the rate should be. They're rate followers, not rate setters.
0: And that rate is changing all the time. If you listen to what Powell says, that's exactly what he said in the latest meeting. We're still searching for a sufficiently restrictive rate. And they talk about things like our star which is the rate which is neither stimulating or slowing down the economy. That's the neutral rate of interest, right? Is that another way of saying that? Yeah, that's the neutral rate of interest, yeah. So
1: it's where the central bank isn't causing a headwind or a tailwind. It's just letting the economy do its thing.
0: And lots of people have said that our star's fallen very significantly. But recently, they've been talking about it increasing. So that's why they're talking about increasing policy rate. It's because our star's higher. But maybe we've undersold the role
1: of central banks. They're not pure rate followers. They do impact things themselves with their decisions. Obviously, one way is that they affect expected inflation. So if you said that long-term rates are determined by inflation and real growth, well, they can weigh on one of those things by making people think they're going to be super hawkish, for example.
0: Yeah, indirectly, they certainly affect so many aspects of economic activity. The hurdle rate is probably the best example of that, I think. And for short-term risk-free
1: rates, they do kind of get involved in just setting them, don't they?
0: Yeah, the short end of the curve to first order, anything less than one year, is essentially the policy rate from the central bank. That's what they drive. So whenever the curve inverts, when the short end goes very high, it's usually because of what the Fed's doing. So when people say that yield curve inversion is a predictor of recession, what they're really saying is that the Fed broke it. The Fed's going to break the economy. Which is what they were all saying this time. And
1: we're waiting for it, right? And they haven't, yeah. (laughs) And here we've gone back into the world of government bonds as kind of being a proxy for the risk-free rate. But as we've said, they're not necessarily. And people know that in emerging markets, right? No one assumes that Argentinian government bonds are risk-free, right? That's not the (laughs) risk-free rate in Argentina. Everyone knows that. Particularly for one of those serial defaulters. But even countries with very high credit ratings have defaulted in the past, as we've mentioned. So there are no examples of AAA countries defaulting. But if you go one notch lower, AA, which remember is what two of the credit rating agencies think the US is right now, the default rate on local currency government bonds is apparently 0.91%. So it's very small, but it's not zero. And as you go down the credit ratings, the default risk just goes up and up really. So if you go to triple B, for example, which is the lowest investment grade, the default rate is around 10% for sovereign debt. And there's interesting the difference between local currency government bonds and foreign currency bonds. So as you get down into the lower ratings, the risk is much higher for those foreign currency bonds. Hard currency bonds are often called, aren't they? When countries have borrowed in dollars, for example.
0: And there you can't print money to service the debt. So there, effectively, you can't control whether you default. That's an interesting point, isn't it? Because in a country like America
1: or Britain, where we're borrowing in our own currency, we can, if we had to, print money. So would a default not be a political decision, effectively, rather than something that's been forced upon us?
0: Yeah, you've got a choice. And sovereign defaults for developed markets would certainly be a choice. I think the worrying thing about the US, for example, and the reason why they got downgraded was to do with governance and the fact that their own political system and the madness of the debt ceiling system, combined with huge political polarisation and dysfunction in their system of government, is what led to the downgrade. Because an accidental default Which isn't really accidental, because if they can't agree on paying their bills, that's not an accident. Let's say an unenforced default. An unenforced default, like in tennis, an unforced error. (laughs) It's not because they choose not to pay; it's simply because their ineptitude led to the default.
1: I mean, ultimately, it didn't happen, but it always looks like it's getting close.
0: And you can see how very easily it could happen. They were just a whisker away, just as they were in 2011. Because even if they're playing a game of brinksmanship,
1: and everyone kind of knows that at the last minute they'll reach a deal and raise the debt ceiling. What if something mad happens at the last minute, right? What if there's a terrorist strike at the, <laughs> the day before?
0: Then you can't raise it and you default, right? That can happen. Yeah, that would be terrible. I mean, that would be a technical default. But I think the fact that they got to that point is itself a problem. You should never even question whether this coupon's going to be paid. But to
1: just go back a bit, we said, okay, the government can print money or the central bank can print money to repay bondholders if needs be. That doesn't come without cost though, does it? And that's where the choice gets into it because you print more money and more money to try and repay greater and greater interest on your debt. Obviously, that has implications for inflation.
0: Yeah, increased money supply is going to be inflationary and that's not going to help beyond a certain point. But as long as you've got that kind of credibility, which I think the US still has in spate, I think it's not going to be a problem. Being able to service their debt. However, if you do look at the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan US government institution which projects debt sustainability in the future, they think that it's very clearly unsustainable now, US debt, for a combination of reasons. One of them is the fact that there's a huge fiscal deficit, which is always maintained. And that's a matter of government policy. They decide what they spend their money on.
1: And that's true for both parties. So the Republicans typically want to cut taxes, which blows out the deficit, and the Democrats typically want to spend more social protections, which blows out the deficit.
0: Yeah, and there isn't a party which doesn't do either of those. Eventually, maybe they will have to be. But certainly on this trajectory, unless there's a change in expenditure minus taxes, that's negative and it's increasing the debt year on year. And of course, the interest costs are increasing as yields are now higher. So currently, we're looking at interest payments as a percentage of tax receipts, which is the government's income, at around 8 to 10%. And it's been
1: going up rapidly, and will probably continue to increase. Because if you look at the stock of US government debt, the average maturity is a little over six years. So that's not that long. And now we've got higher interest rates, more and more of the debt will roll over onto higher rates unless interest rates fall in the coming years.
0: Yeah, so I think that will increase, and that's factored into these forecasts from the CBO, for
1: example. Because we've had higher interest rates in the past, which have meant interest payments on debt are higher. But the thing is now, there's a lot more government debt. So if interest rates go high, it can become unsustainable.
0: So as long as GDP is growing more quickly than debt, the debt-to-GDP ratio will fall. There are
1: some headwinds here, though largely driven by demographics. So for most of modern history, social security in the US has been self-funding, right? The money put into it by people from their paychecks has funded the entitlements it has to pay out to retirees. That's changing. It's no longer self-sustaining. And either entitlements will be cut, or people will have to pay in more, or the government will have to fund it by increasing the deficit. Likewise with Medicare. So there are these programs which are much harder to sustain with an ageing population.
0: Because if you want to increase GDP, there are two ways you can do it. Create more people, increase the population, or make those people more productive. And neither of those seems to be happening. The US population isn't growing rapidly. There's more political discourse about cutting immigration. And of course, productivity hasn't really increased. I mean, if you believe Kathy Woods, then there's going to be a huge surge in productivity due to AI. But personally, I don't really buy into that. It'd be
1: nice, but I don't think we can rely on it. Right? It would be a bonus. I think what's more likely is that we'll get another age of austerity to bring things back into line.
0: Politically, I just think that's more likely, yeah. But I think the assumption that
1: government bonds, even US treasuries, are free of default risk probably no longer stands, or at least will become more and more questioned over time. Would you agree with that? I think it
0: hasn't been questioned yet. The credit spreads just tell you that. And the fact that it's used as collateral, which is as good as cash in almost all transactions, tells you that no, people still trust the US not to default, at least for now.
1: Okay, so at the moment, it's still all good, do you think? But let's say that changed and investors began to think there was some element of default risk. What would the implications be for investors? How would it change how we invest?
0: I think if anything was safer, that would be a very precious thing. So I'd expect the valuation of those safe things. We talked about Johnson & Johnson. We talked about Microsoft. I'd expect those valuations to increase. So a scarcity of safe would mean a greater premium for safe. But could you imagine a world where there is no
1: safe asset? There would still be the risk-free rate, theoretically, like we've talked about, which you could get to by stripping out default risk. But there could presumably be a world where there just are no safe assets and you have to take risk whatever you buy. And presumably that would have implications in a crisis because usually you'd see a rush for safety. (laughs) Like, where would people run to in a crisis, right? Everything would be up in the air.
0: The thing about safe is it's a spectrum and there'll always be things which are on the safer side of the spectrum. So I think bonds, government bonds from developed markets will always be there, even if they do carry some risk. If the really, really risky stuff falls in value, you're still going to flock to something safer. So I think that won't go away. I know that Damadaran says
1: that and I quote, when there is no safe haven, market corrections when they happen will not follow predictable patterns. So he I think is hinting at the fact that what is seen as the safe asset could change and change quickly over time as people learn how things now respond in a crisis.
0: But if there was a rapid change in the perception of safety, that would be completely different. That would be world-changing, and it would be catastrophic for risky assets. So let's just hope that doesn't happen. But I think more likely is that it is going to be gradual and interspersed with crises, like debt ceiling problems, like the pandemic, which suddenly change things so that the spectrum of risk changes. I still think that treasuries will be at the top in terms of safety. But what it does mean is that people would be more willing to take risk, I think. You know, if you've got nothing which is safe, well, you know, why not? I think that's
1: right, isn't it? Is that if the sovereign default risk went up, then presumably other risk assets would be relatively more attractive. Like they, everything might sell off together, yeah. but you'd still rather hold stocks and be paid the premium, I would have thought.
0: Yeah, after the initial shock wears off, I think people would be more willing to take risk. I think that would be one of the consequences.
1: But you're still confident enough that there is a safe thing?
0: What would it take to change your mind, an actual default? I think to do with governance in the US, I'd have to see a US set of politicians who would be willing to default. Some of them did say it this time. Some of the fringe
1: Republicans, Donald Trump said they should default on their debt or at least do it unless the Democrats give them all the concessions they want.
0: Yeah, and that was really worrying. And that was almost there for me. And of course, almost there for many of the credit rating agencies. Yeah. I
1: mean, I think they were right to downgrade. If you have elected politicians coming out and saying,
0: we should default or at least think about it,
1: then there must be a default risk, even if it's
0: tiny. Absolutely, yeah. If you want to talk about pricing and risk and whether it's worthwhile taking risk, then why not join our community where you can learn more about it? You can do that by going to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb
1: question of the week comes from one of our listeners, Chris, who asks, why choose bonds over simply holding cash in your portfolio? So I know we often talk about asset allocation, and you might have, in the traditional way, 60% of your portfolio in stocks and 40% in bonds. But why couldn't that 40% be in cash? Because we know all the drawbacks of bonds. They move up and down in price. They're harder to understand. What's wrong
0: with cash? Well, there's less wrong with it now, I'd say. And money market funds are kind of like cash, so that's an alternative, which is cash-like. And really, cash is just an extreme zero-duration government bond, in my opinion. It's got zero duration, which means it's insensitive to yield curve movements. So it's like a bond that just matures second to second. Yeah, and it has zero duration. So that's effectively what it is. So in a sense, cash is a bond, it's just zero-duration bond. That's the nerdiest way of describing cash I've ever heard. Kind of true, But if you look at it in those terms, then really holding cash is just saying that you don't want to take any duration risk at all, which in turn means that you think interest rates are going to increase further. Yes. Because zero duration won't be affected by that. Whereas if you think interest rates are going to fall, you'd go for things which have longer duration because you'll benefit from that. Yeah, so that kind
1: of raises the question. So let's think about that traditional 60-40 portfolio. Why do people typically in the 40% take duration risk? Why do they hold intermediate or long duration government bonds?
0: Well, usually there's a term premium. You're compensated for taking duration risk. Because the curve is upward sloping, you get a high yield for 10 year, then seven year, then three year, then zero year. So the premium compensates you for taking the duration risk. At the moment. Not true. The yield curve's inverted and the term premium is negative. You're punished for taking that risk and rewarded for taking less risk. But the long-term
1: returns show that you get paid for duration risk. If you look at the stats over the last hundred years, bonds pay more than cash.
0: Yeah, normally that would be true. So my favorite report, Dimson Marsh Staunton, stocks return 6% above inflation, bonds 1.7, and Short-term government bonds, bills 0.4%, historically, between 1900 and 2022.
1: And those short-term bills are basically the cash return, right?
0: Yeah. So that's where you get with a money market fund about 0.4% above inflation. So the question of why choose bonds over cash? Well,
1: one, you're just going to earn a higher return from bonds, typically. But also the argument is that by taking duration risk and holding 10-year bonds, say, they will often compensate for the fall in equity in a market crash. So when stocks crash, bonds might rally. Not always the case, but often.
0: And at the moment, I think what could happen is yields at the long end of the curve may increase and make bonds sell off further. Now, when the curve re-normalises, what usually happens is you've got around, I don't know, 2 3 maybe even 4% at the short end. And then the long end of the curve is at about 5% nominal. So gradually upward sloping between about 2% and 5%. That's the normal shape of the curve. So currently in the US, for example, that means a 1% increase at the long end, and the short end is going to move down by about 3 percentage points, maybe. And if that's the case, then there's still pain to come at the long end of the curve. So what would I be doing right now? Well, if you are going to be in bonds, then you can go for the short end of the curve, and when you think inflation's about to be licked then at that point you'd extend the duration to further out on the curve
1: then you're getting into market timing though like the 60 40 the idea is people could just buy it and hold it forever without having to
0: tweak it around at all well that's not quite true because with bonds you can market time and you can market time to the millisecond because you know exactly what you're going to get and when you're going to get it so you know the day you buy the bond what yield you're going to get So that's why I think you can market time with things like govies. If there's no credit risk, then you're kind of okay. But in a 60-40
1: bond portfolio, people are holding a bond fund, usually. They're not buying individual bonds and holding to maturity. They're holding a bond fund with a constant duration.
0: That's right. And I think in that case, you do take the duration risk. You don't have control over when it's bought or sold, and you will take a hit if yields increase.
1: But that's a hit you're willing to take because of the long term return of bonds over cash.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I think at the moment there's a lot more interest. I just know this because people are contacting me to talk about it.
1: You should really do your Roman PMI report.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But even financial advisors are talking to me about buying government bonds now. I think a lot of them, you know, they're used to stocks, but not used to thinking about fixed income. So that's why I think part of the zeitgeist now is, oh, okay, so you can have this bond ladder, which you can manage, and that can be the bond component of your portfolio. And just to wrap up,
1: I read an interesting blog by Ben Carlson, he runs A Wealth of Common Sense, which was looking at a 60-40 portfolio, and if you constructed it with cash for the 40% on one hand, or more traditionally, with five-year treasuries in the other example. And what was interesting to me is there's not a huge difference between the two. So if you look at the period from 1926 to 2023, the portfolio with cash in it returned 7.9% per year. And the portfolio with the five-year treasuries returned 8.6%. So a little bit higher, but not much. And the volatility was roughly comparable, very marginally higher for the bonds. So 11% volatility for cash, 11.2% for the portfolio with bonds. And if you look at the graph where he's plotted it, they track each other very closely. So to me, that suggests the construction here and the duration you take in the 40% is maybe
0: not that important. Yeah, the periods when the cash is going to win is when you have very high inflation. So if you actually look at the graph in detail, you can see that in the 70s, during that really high inflation period, the cash portfolio was the one that beat the bond portfolio. So that's why if you look at things like the all-weather portfolio, It's got that very high cash allocation to T-bills, because they tend to do fairly well during high inflation periods. So it's ironic. Ray Dalio himself said that cash was trash a while back. Clearly, not the case. I think cash is actually looking much more attractive now. And I think Ray would probably agree.
1: Yeah, he did row back on that. I think the motto should always be cash doesn't crash. That's the attraction of it. I like that. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr
0: at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Ramin Nakiza
1: and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to
0: seek independent financial advice.